Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. Then two robbers were crucified with Jesus, one on the right and another on the left. And those who passed by blaspheming him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priest also mocking with the scribes and elders said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Even the robbers who crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there, when they heard that, said, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and yielded up his spirit. Then, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves, after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly this was the Son of God. Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as the white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will, be, you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples word. Father, we thank you for this story. God, for this moment in human history that we remember today, and Jesus, we celebrate. We celebrate this today. And God, maybe for people today who are looking in the tomb and not quite sure what they are meant to celebrate, not quite sure what they're meant to see, Jesus, open eyes today. God, for people whose hearts are weary, breathe life back into them with the hope of the resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen. 
You know, every holiday ultimately has a message connected to it. And so our question today is really, what's the message of Easter? The message of Mother's Day is really clear. It's thanks, Mom, right? Father's Day, we all know it. It's thanks, Dad. Fourth of July, it's independence or freedom. Memorial Day, it's that we remember. Christmas even is that he's arrived. Or maybe you'd get fancy and you'd say, well, it's incarnation. It's that God puts skin on. That's what incarnation means. That's what we're celebrating is that God put skin on and came and dwelt among us. In scripture, I love how John's gospel says it. It says that God came down and moved into the neighborhood. That that's ultimately what we remember and celebrate for us at Christmas every year. That God would, who was immature, would take on material flesh, become breakable, and ultimately become broken. Because that's what we'd remember on Good Friday. On Good Friday, we'd remember and say, well, he died. Or again, you might get fancy and you'd say, well, no, Good Friday, I think of substitute. That that's ultimately why Jesus came, was to suffer and die as a substitute. That that's what we're remembering. But what is it we remember on Easter then? What is the message of Easter Sunday? Well, for many of us, we'd say it's that Jesus is alive, right? We would, we would say that's the message of Easter. We'd say, in fact, it's that he's risen. There's three simple things I want to discuss with you today that we'll just quickly make our work through. And the first is, well, what was heaven's message? How did heaven define the message of Easter on that first morning, that first Easter morning? That's the first question. But then the second one would be very quickly, we'll talk about, well, did the Easter even happen? And then we'll ask the other question that maybe is most important, and that's, does it even matter, though? So what's the message of the first Easter? of heaven itself speaking in that moment? Well, it's found in what we just read. Heaven itself sent messengers on that first Easter morning to the tomb where Jesus laid. And those angels that that spoke to those first women who arrived, they gave four imperatives to them that really sum up the message of heaven for that first Easter morning. They said, come and see. And then they told them, go and tell. This is the message of Easter. This is what heaven's messengers invited humanity to do on that first Easter morning. Again, Matthew 28, look in your Bible at verse 5. It says, but the angel answered and said to the women, don't be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said, come and see the place where the Lord laid and go and quickly tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. This moment, I believe, is Jesus is the culmination right here of what humanity has longed for and anticipated since shortly after humanity breathed its first breath in human lungs back in the garden itself. Echoing from the garden then was this promise from heaven of a deliverer. God himself promising to rescue us from Satan's tyranny from the brokenness of sin's decay and and how it had splintered all of creation, a promise that he himself will suffer for us as a substitute, a promise that the prophets foretold would also include him proving his identity and proving his sacrifice was acceptable to God by rising from the dead. You see, the message from the garden is the same as the message of a manger. It's the same as the message of a cross. It's the same as the message of the Bible as a whole. The message of Christianity is that God wants his family back. Think about that, please. That's the message of the whole thing. 
And in order to bring us back into a right relationship with the Father, Jesus would be treated as an enemy so that we could be received back as sons. In fact, in Matthew 27 and verse 42, what was just read for, or to you was on the cross while he's there that people are mocking him, saying he saved others and yet himself he cannot save. And in that moment, although their words were an insult, they carried a startling truth with them that he could not save. The truth is he could not save himself and others. Instead, he's on a cross because he willingly made a choice that it would be himself for others. That's why Jesus is on a cross. Even their insult carried a spoken truth for the world to hear that it would not be himself and others. It would be Jesus himself given for others. Please hear me. The cross, it tells me that I'm far worse than I'd ever imagined, and yet somehow simultaneously far more loved than I'd ever hoped or dreamed. It tells me I'm more broken than I thought and that I can't fix myself. I needed heaven's rescue. But it tells me that I'm more valuable and loved than I'd ever hoped or dreamed because God was willing to leave heaven and come and give his life for me. That's what the cross tells me. It's grim and it's ugly in its reality, and yet it's so beautiful and hopeful and what God expressed of love and care for you and me on a cross. My friends, Easter invites us, though, to come. To come, it says, and see the place where the Lord lay. It provides what we always needed for God and man to have what we've always wanted, and that's for us to be reunited. What we've always longed for is things to be made right and whole, and they will not be made right and whole until creation is reconciled with its creator where he can, can can come and redeem and restore all things, fix the brokenness, not just in me, not just in society, but in creation itself. Easter invites you, come. Jesus had said it this way in Matthew 11. He said, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The invitation from heaven on that day was to come, and we come to him who first came down. We come to him who became, willingly humbled himself to become one of us. We come to him who demonstrated his love so very clearly by going to a cross. We come to the one who was placed in a grave but would not remain in a grave. We come to him that rose from the dead. We come to the one who's alive today, who holds forgiveness today, who offers peace today. Your Bible tells you God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Elsewhere in scripture, it says, so that the world might be reconciled back to himself. Come, the angel said. Easter invites you not just to come, but to come and see. Come and see the place where they laid him, they said. You see, there's such a difference between me asking you to look at something and me helping you to begin to see something with clarity. There's a difference, think, between you just looking the direction of something and you actually seeing it for what it is. When I was a kid, I remember these books became really popular where they were, on each page was a different colorful pattern that was printed for you. And if you stared long enough at the pattern, you'd begin to see, do you remember these books? The 3D object that would appear. You might remember you'd, 
you'd cross your eyes slightly, and then 3D images would begin popping out about the same time that a headache would begin arriving. <laughs> because I think this is why they don't make them anymore. They've got to be doing some terrible damage. And my mom had always said, if you, cross, if you do that, your eyes are going to get stuck. But also, if you do that, you see dinosaurs pop out of prints. You know, willing to risk, risk it all, roll the dice on those things. There are some people, though, and I remember I have five kids in the family I grew up in. One of my siblings, they could look at the print on the page as long, as long as they wanted, as long as their patience would allow them, and they never saw what was truly there. They could look at it, but they never could see it. And there are a lot of people that they'd look at those prints, and they would just see a print and never see and think all of us were lying to them about, look at, no, the 3D image that popped out or all of a sudden became a depression there. Listen, please, it's possible to look without seeing, and the same is true when it comes to a world today that commemorates a resurrection of Jesus and looks his direction but fails to see, fails to see what's truly there. This isn't just like a nuance in the English language that I'm kind of overemphasizing. The idea of heaven inviting us to come and to see, it's, it's 46 different English translations I looked at this week. All of them render it as see, come and see this, except for one that, that it translates it and says, come and behold this. The idea is to take it all in, take in the few, the full view of this moment. It's a Greek word that's used to describe seeing with your eyes, but also seeing and perceiving with your mind. It's telling you experience this, perceive it and know it personally. That was heaven's in invitation at the first Easter. Come and see this and experience the reality of what this means for you. This is what heaven's messengers arrived and invited humanity to do, to come and to see. Don't make the mistake, my friends, of millions around the world that do this at Easter, who merely look the direction of a cross and a tomb, but they fail to see the significance of it. See an empty tomb this morning and grasp and comprehend, begin to understand what it clearly declares to us because heaven itself invites you still to do the same thing they invited these people to do. Oh, come and see. See it for yourself. You know, there are several things that every religion in the world shares in common with the exception of Christianity not fitting into their mold, not fitting with that grouping. The first thing is this, it's that every other religion presents a list of requirements that parishioners or practitioners have to do or achieve in order to inherit the favor of God or in order to achieve enlightenment itself. They present, every religion does a list, but your Bible tells you that the law of God was given and its purpose was quite different. It was given so that no flesh would justify itself. It was given as a mirror that showed me my deep flaws, but my deep need for a savior because it says it also functions like a schoolmaster, a tutor who would teach me that what's true about you is that you are hopelessly a wreck and in need of a savior and you cannot save yourself. Look what the law shows you about your own heart, but I'm going to point you forward then to your substance. The law is meant to point us towards Jesus. Every other religion creates a list of requirements that are your way to gain access to favor with God or to enlightenment. However, Christianity is so different, it does not present you a list. It essentially presents you with news. Of past tense, what God has done for you that you and I are meant to believe and embrace. We're meant to see it, to experience it personally. It's so different from every other religion it in that it doesn't generate a list at all. 
You see, the Christian message, it's terribly offensive and yet simultaneously incredible news. Remember, as I just said a moment ago, it tells me I'm far worse than I'd imagined, yet simultaneously somehow far more loved than I'd ever hoped or dreamed. That's what we call the gospel, the good news. Buddha's dying words were strive without ceasing. Jesus' dying words were it is finished. The gospel tells me that Jesus did for me what I could never do for myself. He did everything that was needed and required for me to reach and to please God, to have favor and a connection, a relationship with him once again. But there's another thing that sets us apart, so different if you're a follower of Jesus, in that every other religion is categorically fitting together, and yet Christianity stands separate and apart. And that's that every other religion's founders are dead and buried in the ground. You can go and visit their tombs. You can go and find their body or their cremated remains. Muhammad's tomb is visited by millions upon millions upon millions of his followers every year. Confucius' grave is surrounded by more than 100,000 dead bodies of his followers. It's Buddha who was cremated cremated and his ashes were spread into key regions in India where shrines would be built. It's Rain Wilson, more popularly known as Dwight Schrute, the assistant to the regional manager in the hit show The Office, who follows the teachings of the Baha'u'llah and is a part of the Baha'i faith, where you can go find the founder of the Baha'i faith. You can find his remains in a Middle Eastern mansion, and you can go and visit the grave. Now, I mentioned Rain Wilson because he does play an incredible character, but also to make sure you're still with me and I haven't lost you. But hear me, please. Jesus is so different than all of them. In that for 2,000 years, no one has been able to point to an occupied tomb housing a body inside because Jesus beat death and robbed the grave of its grip and terrible tyranny over humanity. That's what we remember at Easter. My friends, the cross and the empty tomb, they are the centerpiece of the Christian message. They are the centerpiece of all of human history. It all builds and crescendos in this moment. And the message of the moment is come and see, but then it's also go and tell. If this is all true, if we're seeing this clearly, then we, like those first women who reached the tomb, have been commissioned, then go and tell. Those two women would do just that. They went out and they told others the things that they had seen. Those people in turn also chose to to do the same, to go and to tell others still. If we fast forward long enough, then we reach hundreds of millions, over a billion people today alive on planet Earth who believe in Jesus and what he accomplished in beating, conquering the grave and have embraced what that means for their life personally because of two women who first arrived in this moment. If that's true, then that just pushes on me. Easter reminds me that now maybe is my turn too. Not just to come and see, but Easter tells me that my commission is to go and to tell. It does invite me, come and see, but it commissions me, Easter does, always to go and tell. But let's be honest. We have to ask the hard question. But is any of this true? Most of us grew up hearing that if if something seems too good to be true... It probably is, right? And a message like this, that it's a, it's a message unlike any other message, a, 
A Christian message is unlike any other religion. Rather than a list of requirements is essentially news. Believing that you don't have just a dead founder in a grave listing principles for you to follow. You have a risen Savior alive who wants to be your Savior because He was your substitute. If it's too good to be true, it probably is, is what so many of us would think. And so this is our second thing that we have to answer at Easter, is did this ever even happen? Is this even real? You see, the the scriptures are explicitly clear in pointing out the significance of Easter. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14, it says it this way, If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Nothing in this book matters or is relevant unless the resurrection took place. Nothing in the book is relevant or matters unless the resurrection actually took place in history. So buckle up for your nerdy five-minute rant of the day. Ready, set. I think there are so many reasons why you should actually believe that this is a historical event. Let me just give you really quick a handful of them. We could talk about the rise of Christianity in Jerusalem in the first century because it's a historically documented fact and no one argues with it that the church was born in the first century in the very place that Jesus was crucified and buried. Why does that matter? Because the leading authorities were the Jewish religious leaders and the Roman military and both of them tried to shut up the Christian movement. All they had to do to shut them up was drag out a body. And yet they didn't because they couldn't. The rise of Christianity is something we could talk about in the first century there in Jerusalem itself. We could talk about another thing, like we could examine the massive shift that took place amongst Jews in the first century there in the Holy Land in Israel. Because that massive shift that took place wasn't just cultural pieces that connected them to a cultural movement, the Jewish history of the nation, but those were pieces that connected them to their right standing with God. And they stopped and ceased. They no longer observed Shabbat. They never, they no longer observed the Sabbath on a Saturday. Instead, they gathered to worship on a Sunday, calling it the Lord's Day. They broke the Sabbath law. It's them no longer separating themselves from the Gentiles. Instead, they're eating with them. They're even intermingling and marrying with them. Whereas they're breaking Old Testament law, believing that Jesus had created instead a new family. Do you understand that the first century tells us that the temple sacrifices had ceased even before the temple was destroyed, that for so many of the Jews, they no longer were bringing sacrifices back, but those were the only thing that covered them and brought a way for them to be reconciled with God so that their sin was not on their own heads, but they stopped doing that because they believed Jesus, the Lamb who was slain, had risen from the dead. That's history. That's not just Bible. We could jump in and talk about, and, and we ought not to forget the incredible persecution and deaths of so many of Jesus' disciples, that they went out preaching around the world, going to new continents and people groups, bringing the message, not just that Jesus had died, but that he'd risen from the dead, and refused to recant their testimony that they saw a risen Jesus. This is history telling us this. And when they refused to recant their stories, 10 of the 11 guys who remained would be martyred for their faith. We're not just talking about how they die in old age. We're talking about some of them being crucified, one of them being crucified upside down, one of them being shot through with arrows, and after each shot being asked, will you recant what you say about a risen Savior? And he said no. One of them being filleted alive like a fish. This is what history tells us happened to the first century followers of Jesus who said he's alive and we saw him. No one dies willing to tell a lie that has no benefit to them. Oh, but Trevor, what's the difference then, respectfully, between that and a suicide bomber? A suicide bomber is is dying for something that they believe to be true that was handed down to them from the 7th century. The difference between them 
And a disciple of Jesus who died in the first century is if it was a lie, they knew it because it started with them. They're not believing someone else's testimony. They're dying for what they saw with their own eyes and said to be true. The lie would have started with them. No one dies for a lie like that. We could jump in and we could talk and work through the ridiculous alternative theories regarding the resurrection. Things like, well, Jesus didn't rise from the dead because Jesus never existed. And I could list for you, I could list out 40 sources from historians outside of biblical authors that write about Jesus' life and give us facts about his life, his death, and even his resurrection within the first 150 years of his life in history. But we could say, well, maybe, as others have said, maybe the women went to the wrong tomb. And we'd probably say that's kind of misogynistic and rude. But a part of that theory is also that the Roman government forgot where they had placed the body. Not only the women go to the wrong tomb, but the Roman government and the Jewish religious leaders and Jesus' followers themselves forgot where they had placed Jesus. And everyone had somehow forgotten and had this crazy case of amnesia. Others suggest, well, maybe the disciples stole the body. Tell me how they did that, but then explain why they do that. And why then, as they're filleted alive, they would not recount and say, we'll tell you where the body is. It was all just a joke. People lie to get rich. People lie for personal benefit. No one lies to be crucified upside down. The leading theory for why the resurrection didn't happen is called the swoon theory. It's that Jesus didn't actually die. He merely swooned. He passed out and was misdiagnosed. We're talking about someone going through the 39 lashes of the cat of nine tails, him even before that being placed or having a bag placed over his head and, and people mocking him saying, prophesy who hit you, and they hit him again and again and again. It's Jesus on a cross for six hours, naked and exposed to the elements, bleeding out. And at the end of that six-hour period, someone coming to see if he was still alive and they were going to break his legs if he wasn't. He was no longer breathing, so they placed a spear through his side, into his side. Blood and water came out, which signifies, medical professionals will tell you, that his heart had actually ruptured and the sack of water that encases your heart had also burst and blood and water came out. But when they laid Jesus in a tomb, he wasn't quite dead yet. Have you seen Monty Python? It was fun when you're in junior high, then you watched it again as an adult, and like, what in the world was I thinking? But Jesus spent three days in a dark, damp cave, no medical, no medical professional with him, no medical care or treatment, nothing. Cool, dark, damp cave, felt so revived that at the end of three days, pushed the stone away himself, beat up the guards, knocking them unconscious, ran off into obscurity naked, and then realized as he's running, oh my goodness, I feel terrible, collapses and dies naked in the streets, unrecognizable, even though he's lashed and beaten, clearly has the signs of someone who had just suffered the ultimate death penalty. But he'd die then on a city street and be thrown into a mass grave, naked and alone, Jesus, the one that we have lost into obscurity, that that is the leading theory amongst those who push back on a historical case for the resurrection of Jesus. Do you understand this is so very ridiculous? There's no doubt that Jesus was dead, and there's no doubt in my mind that Jesus is alive today, that he emerged from a grave. And I believe the most compelling proof of that is that there's this life-giving, life-changing power that Jesus promised to us as his people that's displayed in the lives of his people throughout every century since then, even to today. Jesus had said in John 16, he said, I tell you, to the, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage if I go away, for if I depart, I will send him, the helper, the Holy Spirit, to you. 
It's Romans chapter 8, verse 11. The, the Spirit of God who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, He lives in you. And just as God raised Christ from the dead, He will give you life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living inside of you. How can we argue with the powerful testimony of a changed and transformed life of a person who's encountered a risen Savior? where there's freedom from sin and addiction, where there's a restoration of brokenness in a person's life or even in their home, where there's a release of bitterness and unforgiveness, where there's a massive transformation that takes place, where there's even the ability to self-sacrificially love as Jesus has loved us first. There are millions upon millions upon millions of people over century after century after century whose lives have been radically changed and transformed by the life-giving power of a living Savior who resides inside of them. And for so many of you, this is your own story. For so many of you, your life is so radically different from what it was before you first encountered a risen Savior and His transforming power began to take root inside of your life. There's incredible life-changing power in the gospel because you have a risen Savior. You see, our faith is not without evidence. The resurrection is something that's rooted in history. It's illuminated in Scripture. It's, it's described and explained. It's opened up for us to see the beauty and depth of what it accomplished for us. But then it's confirmed in experience when we look at the lives that God is transforming and changing through the power of a risen Savior. But here's where we land the plane. But does any of this even matter? It's important to know what was heaven's initial message on that first Easter. Oh, come and see this. Don't miss this. And then go and tell. But hang on, is that even true? Well, yes, it is. It's not, it's not just an illogical thing or a thing where you're closing your eyes to history. No, it's logical and historical fact. It gives us great explanation for what happened to Jesus, that he rose from the dead. But does any of this even matter? You see, Jesus had promised his earliest of followers, and even those who were not amongst his followers who had rejected him, he promised all of them that the proof of his true identity would be clear to all when he'd rise from the dead. Not that he'd reincarnate, but that he would reemerge from the grave alive again. Jesus' perfect life, his sinless substitution were proven at the resurrection. Romans chapter 1 verse 4 says that Jesus was shown to be openly designated, declared to be the Son of God when he rose from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus, the Messiah, the promised deliverer, our Lord. The Bible makes it clear, maybe you've heard it summarized this way, that the resurrection of Jesus, it secures for us forgiveness for the past. It secures for us power for the present. It secures for us even hope for the future. Forgiveness for the past, it's something we need. In Romans 4, it says that he was handed over to die because of our sin, and he was raised to life to make us right with God again. You see, the resurrection proves that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross as our substitute was acceptable to God as a sacrifice, and that means that I can now become acceptable to God again. See, it's been wisely said the birth of Christ brings God to man, but the cross of Christ would bring man back to God. The ancient prophet Isaiah, he rightly said it this way in Isaiah 53, verse 5. He says, but he would be wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. 
The chastisement for our peace was upon him. Do you hear that? The punishment that brought me peace was upon him. And with his stripes, because of those wounds, we are healed. Make no mistake, Jesus bore the penalty and punishment for sin, but don't make the mistake of thinking or supposing that it was his sin that he suffered for. It was my sin, it was our sin that he took that day and paid for. And his first words from the cross, while paying for it, were, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The way it's found in the Greek language in the earliest of manuscripts of the Old or of the New Testament, it implies, the Greek language implies that it's something Jesus said again and again as they whipped him, as they forced him to carry his cross, as they put him upright, as they mocked him and reviled him again and again, he said, Father, forgive them. And then Jesus' final words included Jesus crying out and saying, It is finished. And the resurrection proved that the sacrifice was accepted. It proves that my sin was paid for. It it proved to us that that way to forgiveness was met. It was made by Jesus himself. The final declaration of Jesus from the cross becomes, for you, if you'll choose to embrace faith in Jesus, it becomes heaven's first, first declaration over you. Jesus' final declaration from a cross, it is finished, can become heaven's first declaration over you today. It is finished. Everything that was needed for you to reach back and please God and be united with him was paid for by Jesus, a risen Savior. You see, it provides forgiveness for the past. It provides also power for the present. Scripture tells us what we just read in Matthew 27, that as Jesus breathed his last, something dramatic took place physically that gives you insight into what was happening spiritually. And that's that the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. It was the separation that existed between the holy space of God where his presence dwelt and then the unholy place where humanity was living was torn in two from top to bottom. It was God ripping it apart, making it clear that I will no longer be separated from creation. It's this incredibly significant moment where it renders the temple itself essentially irrelevant and it indicated that God will now dwell with and in his people. You see, this is the biggest and most significant shift experientially between the Old Testament saints and New Testament followers of Jesus. It's that God is now united with his people, his spirit now indwelling them. And all of that is made possible because of Jesus' death and resurrection. Remember, this is the most compelling proof of the resurrection itself, is the power of God at work in the lives of his people to transform you and me as broken, weary people, to be hope-filled people, to be people of rest and of peace and of hope, that, that we experience the bright sunshine, the dawn of a new day in the midst of a broken, chaotic, dark time. See, the resurrection of Jesus, it secures forgiveness for the past, hope, or excuse me, power for the present, but also hope for the future. It, it provides hope for our future. It's a French novelist and playwright named Thomas Bernhard who is referred to as the unrelenting critic of Christianity. And this is what he said. He said, everything is ridiculous if one thinks of death. Everything is ridiculous if one thinks of death. And he's right, isn't he? 
if you extract Jesus and the hope of resurrection that he secured from us, if you extract that from your thinking, everything in life itself is ridiculous when you think of death. We hope for, we long for, but if we extract Jesus, what hope do we have of the world being made right again when the further that we seem to evolve, we simultaneously devolve as a world and society where we're looking at civilized first world countries and nations at war with each other because of one man's pride, it seems. We're watching brokenness play out on the highest levels and the world standing by to watch it. We can't cry in our situation, our modern war that we're watching play out. We can't cry that what, what fueled that war is poverty and a lack of education. That's not what's fueling this war. Brokenness, human brokenness and the corruption of sin is fueling this war. We cannot hope for more time to pass and things to be made right again when all we see is that the further that we evolve, the further it seems we devolve simultaneously if we remove Jesus. If we remove Jesus, what is the purpose of life itself? Where is there any meaning or purpose in it? If we evolve from random chance, if we then progress through survival of the fittest, think about this, our hearts will not allow us to live our lives the way that our minds tell us we ought. Because we ought to forget the people who are in need right now. We ought to say they're slowing us down and holding us back from progress. If it's just that we've evolved, then their life has no more value intrinsically than a single-cell microorganism. But if we live that way, we call that inhumane. Because we fail even to recognize that that's human. Because to be human is to live different than we're taught to think if we've only evolved in this godless realm. Our hearts betray the very narrative that our minds are trying to tell us that if there's no God, that this is how we should live. And we go, but if we do, we're no longer even human. If we extract Jesus, what hope then is there even of an afterlife? In 1 Peter chapter 1, it tells us that we've been given a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You have a hope for the future. And our hope for our future is rooted in a risen Savior. Easter gives me hope in a secure future. Christ, my substitute, crying out, it's finished, and me knowing everything that was needed to reconcile me back with God was paid for by Jesus. It gives me hope, even Easter does, of a reunion for every weary soul or heart who comes in today having suffered lost in a COVID era, not just of, of finances or a business, but of loved ones. Easter breathes life into my heart and yours and says there's hope still of a reunion. Easter gives me hope in the words of J.R. Tolkien that everything sad will once again become untrue. Please hear me. In the words of J.R. Tolkien, that everything sad will become untrue. Or as Irish writer Thomas More said, he said, Earth has no sorrow that heaven cannot heal. You see, the message of Easter is a message for all of creation that God will make things beautiful and right again. But the message of Easter is a message for each individual. It's a message about forgiveness of your sin, It's a message about power for your life to be changed and transformed rather than fragmented and broken and empty and hopeless. Jesus can take your life and reshape it with the power of the resurrection. And it speaks to every person about the hope that there is a wonderful future ahead of us where wrongs are made right, where tears are wiped away. Easter promises us new life. 
In fact, it beautifully uses the imagery of springtime, saying that Jesus was the first fruits of those who would rise. For us, my wife and I, we moved into a house that was owned by her great-grandpa who had passed away when he was 99. And when we purchased it from her family here in Poway and needed to do some renovation to it, they had one request for us. They said, please don't rip out the rose garden in the front yard because great-grandpa decades before, decades before, had planted the rose garden for great-grandma. And we said, surely we've got a lot to do. We won't bother with the front yard. We've come to love that rose garden, though, especially at springtime. There's two things for me that signal the start of spring. One is that baseball starts, and it makes my heart happy. But the other is that we see the first blossom on one of those plants. You see, at the beginning of the year, you're supposed to hack them down to almost nothing, which is kind of a terrifying thing. You're like, wow, for decades they've grown, and yet I'm going to hack them down and see what happens. But then they slowly start to grow again. And just two weeks ago, it was the first blossom opened. By yesterday, when I was doing yard work, our front yard is covered in beautiful, fragrant roses. Because the first blossom is always a sign and a promise of future life. When I see it, I don't just go, oh good, something's alive. But I go, oh good, more is to come. Jesus becomes the first fruits of all who believe. He's a promise, not just, look, I have new life on the other side of a grave, but he's a promise of all who believe of life that can be experienced, life today and life in our future. Jesus himself said this, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. But then he asked, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Have you come and seen this personally? And maybe you haven't. Maybe you're visiting or just observing. And you haven't fully seen it. Maybe you've looked the direction of Easter in the past, but you haven't taken it all in. My friends, Easter provides hope for those who hurt. Easter speaks life into people who've suffered loss. Easter's the promise of spring after a long winter. Easter's the promise of a dawn after a dark night. Easter's the promise of a hope that's secured. Don't fail to see the joy and the hope that's connected to, that's rooted in what happened that first Easter. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.